Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is is Unforgotten. Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. And any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to subscribe to our Patreon channel for early access to unforgotten episodes and bonus content. Your subscription will help support the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. Hey guys, and welcome back. Hey Stormy. Yeah, what? What's a frog's favorite shoes? I don't know, I love shoes. What's a frog's favorite shoes? Open-toed sandals. Ah, I love it. Awesome. I've been looking up jokes. Well, that's awesome because we haven't had one in a while. I know. (laughs) And my brother asked me yesterday, are you going to tell those terrible jokes at the beginning of every episode? (laughs) I said, well. Not every episode. I might. You can make it a thing, right? Yeah. So I just, we just wanted to remind everybody that, you know, if there's anything you hear in the podcast episodes that's inaccurate or you have any information to add, just let us know. We're happy to correct the episode, amend the episode. And of course, we would love to update any information. Right. When we research the cases, the information is collected through publicly available resources like newspapers.com or you know, whatever you can look at that is available to the public. And sometimes that information is not always the most up to date. That does happen quite a bit sometimes where an article maybe three years ago is different than an article last year. Yeah. And it's especially hard to find information in cases that are 10 years or longer because a lot of times media hadn't swapped to the internet yet. Um, you know, I think probably about the mid 2000s, things had kind of made that move over into posting some articles online along with the paper newspapers. But before that, you were still getting regular newspapers. And sometimes it can be hard to find those. Not all newspapers are in the archives. Right. Um, We uh, kind of forget that, you know, we weren't always we weren't always on the internet. We kind of forget about that because it's so common now. Yeah, and it sucks that sometimes there's newspapers that aren't in those archives, but that and it's just lost, kind of. But I'm thankful that we do have things like the newspapers.com and then the library. Actually, Alabama has the Alabama Virtual Library that has, um, what is that, Newsbank? Uh, yeah, yep. That you... Yeah, and you can search the news sources. Basically, I think they even have an international option. Um, They do. Yeah, I remember when I was looking at it. Yeah, so we can send in public requests for records too, but we don't always get responses to those. It is helpful if there's people that have information that they want to contribute to the cases. That really is helpful because, like I said, the information 
that we put in the episodes comes from those publicly available sources and conversations with family, friends, and law enforcement whenever it's available. So this episode, we're going to try something just a little bit different. Um, We want to make sure that we get you, you know, the best information we can and thoroughly research cases. Um, So today we're going to present kind of um, differently in as much as um, we each research a case and then we'll share it with you in that format. So Sellers is going to start us off with a case out of Claiborne County. That's right. It's actually a heart-wrenching triple homicide involving a mother and two of her children that has gone unsolved for 20 years. Those are sometimes the worst. Yes. It's actually been over 20 years. Hmm. But I actually talked to the investigator on the case yesterday And he was very positive about the case. They've worked really hard on it, and he had good things to say. They've put a lot of time and a lot of work into it. That's awesome, because you don't always get that with every case. Granted, they're busy, so I understand why. I actually told him, you know, not everybody has a Captain Scott Bonner on their case. I'm (laughs) happy to meet you. Um, So the case we're talking about today is Monica and Dalton Rollins, who were discovered brutally murdered inside their Heflin home on Sugar Hill Road on September 16, 2002. Situated in the northeastern part of the state, Cleburne County is home to a large portion of the Talladega National Forest and Cheehaw State Park, which is the highest point in Alabama. Heflin, considered the gateway to the southern Appalachian Mountains, holds the county seat for Cleburne County. And you know how small towns are. Everybody pretty much knows everybody. And Heflin's one of those towns. Of Cleburne County's approximately 15,000 residents, Heflin accounted for 3,400 of those. Yeah, that's pretty small. We have a couple of those near me, too. And they are definitely tiny towns. You can't go into the grocery store without running into somebody you know. Yeah. Everybody knows everything that happens. And there, this case, I think, set the entire community on edge. It Everybody was nervous and they were scared, especially those that were located around the Sugar Hill Road area. Um, nobody knows who did this. And you can only imagine how nervous people were, especially when a child is involved, too, And you have parents concerned about their own children. So even to this day, when we made the post on the page, there were locals that were commenting about how nervous they were at the time. And even still, that this is something that they still talk about to this day. So taking a step back, Monica Pritchett met and began dating her future husband, (laughs) Jeremy Rollins, in high school. The two were married in Cleburne County on May 2nd, 1996. They had two sons, Dalton Rollins, who was born on January 18, 1997, and Aaron Rollins, born on August 28, 1999. According to court records, the couple separated on September 6, 2001, and Jeremy filed for divorce just a few months later in Calhoun County on December 1, 2001. In 2019, 
Jeremy told the Aniston Star that he and Monica had a stable relationship until after the birth of their second son. He said, I don't think we understand what life was about until we were married and had kids. We realized we weren't meant for each other. And I think that happens a lot. You know, you are young in high school and the world is your oyster. You don't really have the grown-up responsibilities and you don't have children. And then you get out on your own and there's bills and there's life stresses and then children come in and they bring in a whole new level of responsibilities and it all just kind of compounds. People are kind of naive when they first start out. You know, it's natural that it's that way because, you know, how much experience do you have at that time? Exactly. At the time of the filing for divorce, Jeremy and Monica were both living in Cleburne County but had moved into separate residences. Monica's address was listed as the Sugar Hill Road address. While Monica and Jeremy were given joint custody of their two sons, Monica maintained primary physical custody with Jeremy exercising visitation every other weekend. That seems pretty normal so far. Yeah, I think that's, you know, pretty standard. And it does kind of give us an idea of how long Monica had lived at that address, too. And some of the articles that we had read when researching the case or when I what I had read researching the case said she had lived there for about a year. Looking at the court records, the custody arrangement appears to have been a source of contention as later filings indicate Jeremy was requesting a modification to the agreement. A letter from his attorney, Shannon Page, to Monica on July 11, 2002, stated that Jeremy wished to assume primary custody and had expressed to his attorney the belief that Monica would be agreeable. If Monica responded to that letter, it's not included in the court records. Um, a bench trial was scheduled for Wednesday, September 11, 2002, but it ended up being continued to October 2, 2002. So, Dalton is now how old? Is he six? Yes. Okay. So Dalton would be six and Aaron was two. The following Friday on September 13th, 2002, Monica's father, Donald Pritchett, had anxiously awaited quitting time because it meant Monica and the boys would be arriving at his home in Anniston and he could finally give Dalton his gift, a foal that Dalton named Mojave. They spent the afternoon horseback riding, playing, enjoying dinner and conversation, and even watched a movie. Then Monica and the boys left around 8.30 p.m. with plans to return later that weekend. Monica's dad is in, did several interviews after everything, and he talked about how excited Dalton was. So I know how I was as a kid, and I know how my kids are, and I can't imagine a whole weekend passing, knowing the horse was there and not having him in her ear saying, can we go back yet? Can we go back yet? Is it time to go back? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. So when the weekend passes without any further word, a relative decides maybe they should go check that Monday. Now, something we haven't mentioned yet is that around the beginning of 2002, Monica found out she was pregnant with her third child. And she later learned she was having another son. By September, she was at the end of her pregnancy. 
which could have been another factor that prompted the relative to go check on her that Monday morning. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you haven't heard from somebody that is especially that far along in the pregnancy, you do get a little worried. Yeah, and it doesn't say how her health was, you know, so we don't know whether she was having any kind of complications or anything like that. That would just be speculation. But they tell you, stay off your feet, try to rest, don't get stressed out, or, you know. Exactly, right. And this is in 2002, so it doesn't say whether she had a cell phone or not. But if she didn't have a cell phone, and they weren't really that common, I mean, they were but people didn't have them attached to them. We've talked about yeah, this not before. Not like they do now. Yeah. No. It would be understandable that people would be concerned. And the neighbors in the area talked about that Monica and the boys were always out in the yard. The boys were always outside playing. They were all, she always had them with her. So nobody seeing or hearing from her was strange. When the relative arrived at Monica's mobile home on the morning of September 16th, nothing could have prepared them for what they'd find. Monica and Dalton had been brutally murdered inside their home. Heflin Police Chief A.J. Benefield told the Cleburne News September 27, 2015, it was the worst thing he'd ever walked into. Based on the information we've read, it doesn't appear there were any signs of forced entry, and investigators believe the murders occurred at some point over the weekend. Early press reports indicated that Monica and Dalton had died from stab wounds. To make an already horrible situation even worse, the trauma from the assault caused Monica to go into labor, leaving her unborn child partially delivered and deceased. Oh, that's horrible. I can't even imagine seeing that. I mean, I can't imagine what she went through. That just, ugh. Yeah. I don't even know what to say about that. That's just terrible. Yeah. I can't imagine somebody who would do this. I can say monster. Yeah. Just, you know, it's one thing even for an adult to kill an adult or even an adult to kill a child, heaven forbid. But then you go one step further. I mean, this. Baby was just about ready to be born anyway. And though the deaths of Monica, Dalton, and Monica's unborn child are absolutely devastating, the silver lining is that Monica and Jeremy's two-year-old son, Aaron, was found in a closet, alive and unharmed. But it's also still a terrible thought because that means that he sat in there, in their house, for however long, with his mom and his brother. Right. What did he hear? What did he see? I mean, yeah. we don't know how long he'd been in the closet, whether he saw anything before he was there. And I'm, I can't even imagine, you know, at that age, they they probably are a bit traumatized, but maybe hiding some of what they saw. I don't know how he behaved afterwards, but that must have been a terrible experience for the poor little guy. It is heartbreaking. Just as a side note, Captain Bonner said that he is, um, he's grown now. He's, I think he's 20, he's 20 years old. He has his own child. He's doing very well for himself. That same day, Jeremy Rollins ended his 12-hour shift at Southwire around 6 p.m. and headed home. 
He wouldn't learn about the deaths of his former wife and his oldest son until a few hours later when officers arrived and asked him to come down to the station. You know, it's typical in these situations for people to immediately jump to the husband did it. Um, So I don't know if that happened in this case right away, but I imagine if they were doing their job, they probably at least um, suspected him a little bit at the beginning, for sure. You're right about the suspicions immediately jumping to the spouse. It is typical. But one thing that doesn't really make sense is that it was also his son. Going back to those court records, he was wanting primary custody of his children. He wanted his children. So that doesn't make sense. But I'll admit that the court records and the court dates seem to have occurred at convenient timing. There was an email to True Crime Diva where Captain Scott Bonner of the Heflin Police Department stated that Jeremy was thoroughly investigated and had been very cooperative with the investigation and was not a person of interest. When I talked to Captain Bonner about the investigation to see if there was any additional information that he could provide to us for the podcast, he confirmed again that Jeremy was not a person of interest. He was also kind enough to post an update on the post that we made for Monica and Dalton on the Alabama Cold Case Advocacy page. So instead of summing up our conversation, I'll just read his comment for those who have not seen it. I want to thank everyone for their support and prayers for this precious family. This case is near and dear to our community and police department. The case was reopened almost two years ago by Chief McGlawn and myself, Captain Scott Bonner. We have resent multiple items to forensics labs, both private and state. We continue to keep close contact with some of the family members and try our best to provide support as much as we can. Although I can't go into specific details due to the ongoing investigation, I will say there is a suspect and evidence. There is no threat to anyone from the suspect in this case at this time. The suspect, who I cannot name yet, is in jail in another state for unrelated crimes. We, the District Attorney's Office, and the Center for Applied Forensics and other agencies have put in hundreds of hours developing evidence and suspects and witnesses. I ask everyone to continue to pray for the family and law enforcement. I also ask everyone to please allow the family to have some privacy while we continue to work on this case. We apologize for it taking so long for details to come available, but as anyone knows, evidence resubmission takes longer than expected. Again, thank y'all for your support and especially your prayers. And as soon as a development comes available, we will share it. God bless everyone and be safe. Wow, that's fantastic that he was able to share that. And I know everybody wants answers immediately. Right. All cases are horrible in their own right. Of course. And when it involves a child, it makes it even worse, I think. Absolutely agree, 100%. Yeah. We've talked about knowing what happened and proving what happened are two different things. And the advances in testing and analysis have come a long way in the last 20 years. So I'm hopeful that they'll be able to get a successful resolution to the case. You know, he was very positive. I truly believe they've worked incredibly hard on the case. Um, And I, I do hate it for the families when it does take so long. I can't imagine 
than not knowing. True. Yeah. But when you have when you have officers that actually have that same empathy and that compassion, they also hate not knowing. Yeah, I think that's one thing that we don't really we we talk to the families or we read about the families having all the struggles with, you know, what has happened to their loved ones. But we don't really often think about the people who are investigating, especially if they happen to be the ones that were on the scene from the beginning, how it affects them as well. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's not as it's not as bad for them as the families, but it's still traumatic. And especially in a small community where everybody knows everybody like this. Um, yeah. I'm sure that they're just about family at this point. The investigation into the brutal and tragic murders of Monica and Dalton Rollins continues on. But with the recent information, we hope that there's a resolution soon. We do still encourage anyone with information, no matter how small, to please come forward. You may have new information that will solidify their case. We also want to echo Captain Bonner's mention to please be respectful of the family space and allow them privacy while they process the ongoing developments. If you or anyone you know has any information about the murders of Monica and Dalton Rollins, please contact the Heflin Police Department at 256-463-2292 or the Attorney General's Cold Case Hotline at 866-419-1236. You may also email Captain Bonner directly at sbonner at cityofheflin.org. Whichever case we're learning about, we often find ourselves thinking of some of the people in our lives that maybe they reminded us of the victims and what it could feel like if we were them. Then, of course, realizing we just can't. There always seems to be some kiddos in my life that come to mind when we're researching a missing or murdered teenager as well. I don't know about you, sellers, but that's the way it always feels for me. I almost always find myself comparing cases to my kids or thinking about my kids or some of my family members, whether it's my niece and nephew or my brothers. Um, It's hard not to relate the cases and think, you know, what if that was my family member? And I think, you know, that's a good thing in some ways, because at least we are conscious of how much it must be hurting that family and that sort of thing. And I think sometimes that is forgotten. Yeah. It gets turned into a story and more of entertainment purposes than people actually wanting to help and assisting the family And keeping in mind, these are people with real lives and real feelings, and sometimes that gets lost. It does. You know, I think we've always tried here to keep the focus on the families and be about sharing, you know, what the victim went through and what the family is going through, rather than, you know, just telling a story. The next case we're sharing is the murder of a teenage girl from Coosa County in central Alabama, who loved to play sports and particularly basketball and volleyball. In this way, she actually reminded me a bit of my own nieces who loved sports, they still do, 
and who both played basketball and volleyball in high school as well. So, you know, I think about them and I think how thankful I am that, that we've never had to go through anything like this. I think about that a lot too, that I'm thankful that, you know, the kids are safe, that we've never had to experience this firsthand. Agreed. So our teenager, Shani Shiverdecker, was a very active 15-year-old high schooler living in Alexander City, Alabama. In late 1994, only six weeks prior to her death, she had moved there from Eureka in central Illinois with her father, Howard, her stepmom, Gloria, and her brother, Chris, and also her half-brother, Levi. This happened when her father had to change in employment, and so they had to move. Shani had spent most of her life living with her father, but often spent summers with her mother, Tina, in northern Illinois. As I mentioned, she loved basketball and volleyball, which she was very active in both Eureka and Alexander High Schools. Family and friends say Shani was very social. She sang in the church choir, and she absolutely loved the holidays. She also very impressively managed school and all of these outside activities, even though she faced challenges related to albinism. She had this condition. Of course, she was born with it, but she also had meningitis as a child, so this kind of compounded it. And this didn't just mean that she had extremely fair skin, white blonde hair, very light, sensitive pinkish eyes, but it also caused her to be legally blind. That's impressive that she did all of this. It is. And, you know, when you read up on all the things that she did, I mean, it's amazing to me. I, you know, people with a lot less disabilities have a harder time than she seemed to have. That's determination and willpower for you there. It is. To battle her vision issues, she wore contacts and glasses. She trained herself to compensate for the lack of depth perception, not only just in sports, but everyday life, like even being able to ride a bike occasionally. Though she had been in Alexander City for just a short time since they moved, which Alexander is about three times the size of their hometown in Eureka, which is only about 5,500 people. She seemed to have gotten her footing with school and friends and acclimated really well to the larger town and the larger school. And she had even asked her family not to call attention or even share her physical challenges so that she could make her way on her own as needed. Her brother was quoted by WFSA News in March of last year as saying, she was just incredible. Nothing stopped her. And this seemed to be the sentiment held by everyone that knew her. I think sometimes whenever you see people who are facing disabilities that can limit or hinder them, or you would expect to limit and hinder them, rising above those challenges, it is just incredibly inspiring. And she sounds absolutely amazing because I can't play basketball to save my life. I have very limited hand-eye coordination. Um, And she just sounds like an absolutely beautiful person. So on December 9th of 1994, Shani was with her basketball team at a Friday night practice at Rodney Elementary School. And that's where the girls varsity team usually practiced. Apparently, 
the basketball teams at her high school practiced at different schools. And so they were there at the Rodney Elementary School. Her stepmom, Gloria, explains just a few days actually after Shani disappeared to the Outlook. She says, they didn't usually have practice on Friday nights, but there was a tournament the next day. And so we didn't know for sure what time it would be done. And so because of that, she was supposed to call her brother to come pick her up when it was all over. Well, Chris picking her up was due to something that unfortunately coincided with the change in practice schedule. Shani's parents had made a trip to Georgia that night, and they happened to take her brother Levi with them as well, which is why Chris was there and was asked to pick her up after practice. It was at this point that things seemed to have gone awry. After practice around 6 or 6.30ish, Shani was waiting outside for her ride. It seems a few other students offered her a ride, but she told them that she had a ride coming. But no one actually saw her make a call from a payphone or a school phone to anyone, not even her brother. And you have to remember, this was in the day before they had cell phones. I think sometimes we forget how convenient cell phones are because they have become such a major part in our everyday life that it's hard to remember a time when they weren't with us all the time. I have my kids on Life 360. I can look and see where they are all the time. And that wasn't available back then. You couldn't just call and say, hey, we're done with practice early or we're going to be later or where you at or anything like that. Or I got picked up by somebody I don't know or anything like that. And I think sometimes we forget um, maybe the blessing in having the ability to keep in touch and track whereabouts because sometimes it's also not as great. It is, yeah. I Just as, as the years pass, it seems like we forget about all those times where things were maybe simpler and some things maybe were better when people didn't have their phone out all the time while they were doing other things. But um, just the ability to be in touch with somebody, especially if their parents weren't around or, you know, that sort of thing. So, And, you know, we talked about, too, in a previous episode that things were different back then. Mm-hmm. And I say back then like it was so long ago. 1994 wasn't that long ago. But it kind of like with the Daniel Barter case, granted, his case was a lot longer ago. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't quite a need to be, or maybe there wasn't an awareness necessarily of all of the dangers that were out there. I don't think people were quite as aware as they are now because I think attention is being brought to it more. There's definitely a much bigger awareness of everything going on. So after some time not hearing from Shani, Chris began to worry and drove to the school to look for her. When he couldn't find her, he called their parents in Georgia, three hours away. They had Chris contact the police and then headed home. By morning, search parties were organized, focusing on a 10-mile radius around the school. At some point after she disappeared, there were two particular sightings reported that were maybe of interest. 
one which Gloria thinks was the wrong day that the people were thinking of. Shani had gone with two friends who were brothers to a local Walmart a few days prior. And all the details that were reported about this sighting actually were perfectly described in that um, incident, even including the purchases that Shani had made that day and the description of the boys. The second sighting was at a convenience store in Alex City. And the worker said he had recognized her with two young men, one that stayed in the car and one that came into the store with her to get something to drink. And this was something that Shani was known to do right after practice, that she always wanted to go get a drink on the way home. Unfortunately, by the time the police actually looked into this, the surveillance tape had been recorded over. Mm. Very common, huh? Yeah. It would be, that's unfortunate because it would be good to know if those two young men were the same two young men she'd been at the Walmart with the day, right. two days prior. There were comments that they were not the same, mm. but I don't know that anybody really knew. Um the convenience store clerk didn't really have a good description of them, but they did kind of describe them as two young men, which the boys at Walmart were not men by any means. So it was hard to say if they just said that or, if, you know, if yeah. they really truly were a little older. But I would interject here that if she was going in to get something to drink like she normally did and he didn't notice anything odd that she may have known them. That seems plausible. Mm -hmm. Over time, several searches took place, but of course she was not found. As often happens, though the consensus was that there was foul play, for a time, the police considered she may have run away. And that's really, really common for the people to think that with young teenagers. They also investigated the Shiverdecker family as suspects, which... Honestly, you know, they should. They should cover all avenues so that they can roll people out and really focus. But in the process of this, they were also asked to take polygraph tests. However, this fed the many rumors that occurred about the family being involved, which most have seemed to center on her brother, Chris. And granted, this was likely because he was there in town and was supposed to have picked her up and such. Police had him actually take three polygraph tests. And that's pretty, you know, that would be pretty stressful for a young teenage kid. I can't even imagine the family thinking that they were focusing on him. That has to be pretty stressful. You have one child that's missing, one child that's being asked to take more than one polygraph test, which seems like that would be abnormal to say the mm -hmm. least, I can understand why, because here you've got this plan where he's supposed to pick her up after practice, but he's saying, well, I thought she was going to call. But again, we've talked about there's not cell phones at this point in time. Was there a payphone nearby that she was supposed to call from? How was she supposed to call him? Right. I wouldn't think that the office at the school would have been open after hours, most of the time when the staff leaves, they walk up their offices. Um, right. So I understand why that would create a concern. 
I always kind of wondered after reading this if maybe she even misunderstood that she needed to call somebody. And that is probably what happened is a miscommunication. She just thought he knew to be there to pick her up. He thought that she was supposed to let him know when she needed to be picked up. And Lord knows that me and my brothers have miscommunications all the time where we think somebody's supposed to be doing something and the other one's waiting. So eventually an anonymous tip finally came in on February 24th of 1995. Long time afterwards, that's 11 weeks after she disappeared. This led police to an abandoned lumber yard off of Highway 9. They found Shani's nude body in some woods behind an abandoned mobile home there. Her cause of death, though ruled a homicide, however, was undetermined. She had been there for so long that they had a hard time determining what exactly the cause of death was. We see that so the tips, often. I hate the word undetermined. <laughs> The tipster was believed not to be the perpetrator, but rather just didn't want to get involved. It was said by some that they heard it was just somebody that was looking to buy property, and while they were out inspecting that, they found her. We're unsure if that's the case or if that was just rumor. Shani's clothing and backpack were never found, and though later in the spring they did actually find her books and purse. They were off the same highway as the lumber yard she was found near north of Alexander City. They had appeared, as you can imagine, probably somebody just threw them out a window of their car. It's weird that they would just throw the books and her purse, but keep the clothing in the backpack. I wonder if they maybe discarded the clothing in the backpack further down the road if it appeared that they had been thrown out of a window, then maybe it was just somebody passing through and mm. that stuff was discarded further on down the road, not even nearby. And then anybody who did stumble upon that, if there was nothing identifying who it belonged to, wouldn't have really thought anything about it. Exactly. The I, It almost sounded like they were actually going through the backpack or something. Mm-hmm. but um, it's really hard to tell what that mean. I mean. The clothes I could see maybe not finding, because I think that would be pretty obvious that maybe it had something to do with her, but the other stuff, maybe they didn't think so much about it. The backpack, I don't really understand. I don't really get the backpack since the purse was thrown out, mm-hmm. and the books, unless they had to empty that to put the clothing in the backpack, oh, maybe. that's a good idea. Maybe that is the reason. Well, I hope someday we find out. Over the years, the case has been investigated not only by Alexander City PD, but Coosa County Sheriff's Office and the Alabama SBI. A few suspects were investigated, but nothing ever came from any of them. In an article from December 16th, 2019, in the Outlook, Alexander's police chief, Jay Turner, says... That the case has never been closed, and with turnover, they went back to the interviews and information and reviewed everything. They hoped with the changes in technology that they would then be able to resubmit items for testing and hopefully get something new out of that. I wonder if they did actually resubmit anything. 
Um, I had a hard time finding any follow-up on that. Um, I did actually um, try to find that out directly from the sheriff's office. Haven't heard anything back yet from that um, phone call. So hopefully, maybe we'll hear something. There was one actual potential suspect all the way back over in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle, Washington, which was kind of odd when I first read that. I was like, wow, Seattle? I mean, transients happen, but, you know, the way that things were described as her possibly being with a couple of young men, it almost seemed weird. But when I went further on, I realized what they were saying. On October 21st in 1997, Clark Ellen Morris, who was, again, said to be a transient, was in jail on burglary charges and confessed to her murder. According to the Montgomery Advisor on November 5th in 1997, he bragged about her murder and also about others in Wyoming and Florida, leading police to suspect he may have been a possible serial killer. This confession prompted a grand jury back in 1998 in Alexander City to review the case, but ultimately they decided there wasn't enough evidence to pursue it any further. There was more investigation in the meantime, but it completely discredited Morris for Shani's murder, as well as some other cases that he may have been involved in. So this can actually, personally, I think this makes one kind of speculate whether he was not well mentally, but also may have been trying to get attention because this has happened with other criminals in the past who kind of just want to get the glory for a crime that they didn't commit. But how would he have known about this? You know, we've well, talked- the, you know, that I wondered that a little bit too, but it was pretty publicized, the murder was. And at first they actually thought that they didn't have... Um, a piece of information that was put out in the public. Um, a, she actually mm. was found wearing tennis shoes. Oh, and he didn't know um, this. And th- he did know this. So they had, that was kind of what first made them to continue with the investigation. But it was later found out that it actually was mentioned in one or two newspaper articles. So it's very plausible that he actually read that and already knew it. But that's still weird. He's in Seattle, Washington, mm-hmm. and I'm going to assume the newspapers that detail was in were local papers. You would think. So, so how does know. he have access to those local newspapers? That's just yeah. strange to me that that far away, that's just bizarre. And bizarre. not saying that they weren't right in ruling him out because you're right people do lay claim to things that they aren't involved in for unknown reasons but it does just strike me that he is all the way in seattle washington with this detail that wasn't really public so it would be good to know what local paper had or what paper had that in that was it a local paper or was it a big paper because if that wasn't well known, that seems kind of like a big deal for him to have known something like that. Yeah. And I actually wasn't able to locate which articles those were yet. Yeah. Um, however, the other thing I was wondering, too, and I couldn't find a reference 
at least not a direct reference to it at all, was that they did say he was transient, which can mean different things to different people. Transient could just mean that they lived on the street, but transient mm-hmm. can also mean that they travel around the country and they don't have a home. And that would so also if, fit in with the idea that somebody was just passing through. Mm-hmm. Yep. So lots of speculation, no real answers. Yeah. Over the years, there's been new investigators and in December of 2021, a $5,000 reward was offered by Alabama Crime Stoppers. And as I said, we reached out to the Coosa County Sheriff's Office for a more recent update, and hopefully we'll be able to provide more information in the near future. In the meantime, her family, particularly her brother Chris and her stepmom Gloria, have kept Shani's case alive as best they could over the years. But unfortunately, her father, Howard, had passed away in April of just this last year. Mm. So he was, unfortunately, uh, he was unable to see her murderer brought to justice. And, you know, it's sad. I hate for the families that go through such long periods of time, hoping and hoping they'll find out. And for him, he wasn't even that old and, you know, passed away. So... Around the anniversary of her death in 2015, there was a Facebook page created for her called Shani Shiverdecker Unsolved. In Newsweek in December of 2021, Chris tells them that the internet and Facebook have been invaluable tools in spreading awareness of this case. It is, as it always has been, my hope that the right person does the right thing and comes forward with the answers to allow this case to finally be closed. Chris's sentiment is what we will echo with Shani's case, as with all cases. We frequently use the following as a hashtag in social media, which we encourage you to share also. If you know something, say something. If you have any information related to the murder of Shani Shiverdecker, we ask you to please call Alexander City Police Department at 256-234-3421 or the Coosa County Sheriff's Office at 256-377-2211. You may also contact the Central Alabama Crime Stoppers, and we'll leave that information in the episode details. As always, for any Alabama missing or murdered cold cases, you can reach us here at Unforgotten via the ACCA Facebook page, by messenger, or through our email at alcoldcaseadvocacy at gmail.com. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Anchor FM, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy, artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening to Unforgotten.